Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your butts. This is episode 122, recorded March 20th, 2019. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Ocken. And this episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. They have some big news to share with you. I'll tell you all about that shortly. You can check them out at pythonbytes.fm slash digitalocean and get a $100 credit for uh, new users. So tell you more about that later. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing good. And if I chuckle, it's because you got your mic up and you kind of look like a rapper doing the thing. Yeah. I'm going to drop it at the end of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, no, things people are good. can't see. Yeah. Like, so I've got my microphone on a different stand. So we'll see how it, how it sounds. But yeah, it's, I think it's working. All right. Yeah. Nice. All right. So, um, I find dictionaries sometimes get used in Python. Like every now and then people <laughs> will like make use of that fancy data structure. Yeah, definitely. One of the hard things, and I, I don't have a link to this. Maybe we could drop it. But uh, one of the things you need to do with dictionaries is pull them apart and put them together and stuff. There's a pep 584. It's to add the plus and minus operators to the built-in dict class. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, we already have it for list. Well, not the minus but we have the plus. List makes sense because it operators are neat. And uh, the thing that throws me off is the, the massive difference between if you do dictionary one plus dictionary two, it's different than dictionary two plus dictionary one because the second thing always wins. Right. If there's duplicate keys, the yeah. second one is going to overwrite the first one. So you're saying that addition might not be Commutative, that might be a problem. Well, maybe, but I mean, like, strings are like that. Like, if you've got, I don't know, do we <laughs> That's do... true. You don't get the same result of, like, hello plus world or world plus hello. Yeah, exactly. So maybe it's okay. We'll link into the pep. Actually, I think it's nice because if you look at the alternates, the alternates are gross. Like, you can unpack both dictionaries and then create a new dictionary, or you can copy one and then update it with the other that all of those are not obvious, and and so I think plus would be good. So we're going to link to that article, but also Guido Van Rossum wrote an article called uh, "Why Operators Are Useful" that partly talks about this, and then also there's an email link of why apparently one of the options for combining dictionaries was to use the pipe operator instead of plus, and so I've got a link to that too. But oh. I. Actually, so this is just a, we don't know if it'll go in. It's in draft status and it just got proposed, but I think this is, it would be a neat thing to add to Python. Yeah. I'm honestly a little bit surprised it's not already there. Uh, it would be nice. I certainly prefer plus over pipe. Like pipe is not something that's commonly used in Python for combining stuff. Maybe if this was C or something, I don't know, but, uh, it's certainly in the Python world. Plus seems like a more natural choice here. Yep. So this next one comes from Matthew Rockland, a guy behind Ask and other data sciencey things. I recently interviewed him on Talk Python, but you know, time shifting, it will be in the future when that comes out. But I was reading through some of his articles and found something I thought, you know, well, at least it super resonated with me. I don't know how your world is, Brian, but mine is like a constant stream of like inbound inquiries, requests, comments like watch the talk python twitter account my personal twitter account we share watching the python bytes twitter account i have a gitter channel i'm on a couple of slacks i'm on like cisco teams or something like this email is insane and there's just too many places that stuff comes at me and i spend like there's times where i'll take a week and i'll take a full two days off to just write email and respond to messages and i'm still not all the way caught up it's like it's really a problem so 
when I read this article called Why I Avoid Slack by Matthew Rocklin, I'm like, oh, yes, this definitely resonates with me because when you get that much inbound stuff, like anything that's transient is super hard to keep track of, right? Like at mentions on Twitter, like maybe I'll catch them, but if I don't, like, I'm sorry, but I just, you know, it's, I lost it. It went by in the stream somehow on accident or something on Slack, right? Like it's a hundred messages back and, you know, I, I dropped in there and I didn't check it, marked the messages red and left, and now it's just gone, right? It's never going to come back. So I feel like those kinds of things, while kind of fun and interesting and more lively, are also, you know, just adding stress and not not really positive. So Matthew wrote this cool article said uh, saying, why avoid Slack? Focused on for open source maintainers of projects, right? Like, should we have a Slack channel for open source project? He says, no. <laughs> so he says, uh, Instead of doing something like that, I mean, I guess a Gitter channel would be basically equivalent. So says, I encourage colleagues to have technical and design conversations on GitHub or some other system that is public, permanent, searchable, and cross-referenceable. What do you think? Actually, for especially for that case of uh, open source projects and and those types of conversations, I think I totally agree. Yeah. So he says, you know, a couple of reasons why, like, say, GitHub, public GitHub repos and their issues and their conversations and PRs and whatnot around it are better than Slack would be because you can engage collaborators who aren't on Slack, right? Not everyone is on Slack, but if you're working with a person who doesn't have a web browser, that's probably okay. You can ignore that person. <laughs> but most people can get to the web and they can read or even Google search and then find uh, some kind of uh, thing. Also, you can record the conversation because it sounds like his life's a little bit like mine. Like, hey, everybody just needs a couple of minutes of your time every couple of minutes, <laughs> you know, and it completely <laughs> derails any form of productivity. Yeah. So it's, it's super hard. And the reason is they'll drop in a Slack channel or some other conversation and go, hey, why is it like this? Or just quick question about that. And it's like, if you have it in an issue and discussed or something, you can say, oh, that's issue 17725. We talked about it for a week. Here's a whole detail, right? Also, you can serve the silent majority. That is people who go to Google and they type in a thing and say, I need help with this thing, or why does this work that way? GitHub ranks super high on Google, and those issues often come up, and you can see the whole conversation. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, the other one is uh, encourage more thoughtful discourse. So if you're writing like one-on-one or a couple of people in a Slack channel, you're willing to just throw out kind of quick off-the-cuff comments. If you're writing in a public permanent forum that's associated with your GitHub profile, it's much more likely that you're going to write something thoughtful. And finally, you get a cross-reference issues. So you can say, we talked about part of it here and part of it over there and this other issue, and then there was this PR, and then we're bringing it back here. You know, Slack is siloed. You can't cross-reference people and conversations and things like that. So here's a call to say, enjoy Slack, chat in Slack, but don't use Slack for design decisions and other stuff, right? Like maintainers come and go. Maybe you want to have a history of these things and not just a transient chat stream. Yeah, and the bigger a Slack channel gets, the more the more useful it is in some respects. You get answers really quickly. But also, the more it reflects like kind of just a, a topical party at somebody's house with lots of yeah. conversations going on. Right, there was a cool chat about this thing on the couch, but that doesn't that's not the same as like, we wrote up our thoughts on that thing. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, I'll have to read this. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. It's not much longer than actually what I talked about, but uh, okay. it's still really helpful, I think. Yeah. What's the next one you got for us? Uh, that reminds me, actually. No, I had a leak in my memory. No, that's bad. <laughs> uh, 
That's pretty good, actually. Uh, it's so bad as good. I like it. There's an article from Zendesk from uh, Y Chi Yao that's called uh, "Hunting for, Mem- for Hunting for Memory Leaks in Python Applications." And I, we've covered uh, memory leak stuff before, but I really like this write up. And it's a uh, uh, specifically they've got uh, Zendesk has a bunch of uh, machine learning in Python written, and one of the problems they run into is uh, some of them will have really big memory spikes or memory leaks, and they want to try to figure that out. So this was a specific use case. So he's not covering all of the options, just some of the tools that were used there. And I think it's cool. I I didn't know some of these things are around. So there's a, a, for example, there's a combination of uh, the memory profiler package with matplotlib where you can easily run without doing anything to your code. You can you can run some Python code and then get a visual graph of uh, the memory utilization, which was cool. If you're hunting into stuff and trying to break things around, there was a discussion of using, adding some code to your code to uh, use, it looks like Muppy, M-U-P-P-Y. Yeah, Muppy. That will uh, dump, heap dump uh, in certain places. So if you if you think, sometimes time really doesn't help you too much, but you can at certain places where you think you're at a stable state, doing a heap dump, especially if it's somewhere, something that's looping, you might be able to catch something there. A reference to object graph or object graph to profile uh, memory object lineage. So objects that create other objects. Yeah, that can be tricky because you've got, maybe you have some object, it's a class and it's got some field, that field is a list. In that list, it has a bunch of objects. One of those happens to hold on to a pointer to some other huge dictionary that you thought like should be gone, but right? There's still some reference yeah. keeping it alive, right? So this object graph will like tell you that basically? Yeah. Nice. Like for example, the, when he, he dumped some of the heap dumps, some of those examples, it's just that you've got like so many megabytes towards strings. Well, I don't know if that really helps you too much. <laughs> Having a, finding out where it came from might be helpful. Yep. And then he ends the article with a, with a bunch of tips. Do quick feedback. If you think something, one of the things I liked, which is probably really good is if you have uh, memory-intensive tasks or something you think might be the problem, separate that into a separate process so you can debug it separately. The Python built-in PDB has a bunch of stuff that can help you as well. And then also watch out for leaky packages because the leak might not be in yours. It might be in your dependencies. Yeah, you might have pip installed a memory leak for sure. Which I was surprised that he said, for example, pandas. And I'm like, really? Pandas is like must be tested the heck out of it. But apparently there's some known pandas problems in some corner cases, but oh well. Yeah, it probably is kind of tricky with like the C layer holding on to Pi object references and all sorts of funkiness, right? My first reaction to dealing with memory in Python is like, well, we're not supposed to have to, so it must be a real pain in the rear. But these tools don't look that bad to work with if you need to. Uh, This object graph looks really cool, and uh, it will actually create a PNG visual graph of the relationships, which is cool. And you can even ask for back references. Like, it seems like this is the thing that has all the memory. It should be gone, but why is it not garbage collected or cleaned up? And you can say, draw me a graph or not a, like a mathematical graph, not a parabola type of graph, a graph theory graph of all the back references to this object, which is pretty cool. Yeah, so you can ask it in both directions. Yeah, right. If you think it should have been deleted and it's not, it's because somebody's still referencing it. Right. So who is that? Tell me about that. I need to know about that right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that looks really cool. It's definitely uh, something I'd like to explore. Actually, let me rephrase that. 
I don't want to explore it. I don't want to have memory leaks. But if I do, I will find it very useful. Yes, definitely. There you go. Also useful, DigitalOcean. Let me tell you a cool thing that they just released. And this came from one of the listeners. They sent me a message like, hey, this looks really cool. Do you know about this? So uh, they announced this thing called the DigitalOcean Marketplace. So the idea is that different companies and other people can create these pre-configured virtual machines and then you can just do one click app install them like if you want a ghost blog server configured with nginx and all that you just click ghost blog server pay your five dollars and now you have one nice or maybe you want like gitlab enterprise a mongodb server or even you can say i want a django server and it'll give you django nginx g unicorn postgres certbot a whole bunch of stuff pre-configured all to work together like in a few seconds that's pretty cool, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So I think this is a really nice feature. You know, it's it's already great to run infrastructure there. And now if you can like get it much closer to the end, it's a little bit, I'm sure it's uh, Docker inspired, right? It seems like that, but for their infrastructure. You still have to figure all that stuff out and to be able to throw a few dollars to the people who are willing to do the work to put it together. That's great. Yeah, it's beautiful. All right, so check them out over at pythonbytes.fm slash DigitalOcean, create an account, and then once you get into your account, there's a little marketplace tab over there. So super cool. So speaking of Docker and all these other things, there's a cool article by Craig Kirstens, and it's called Give Me My Monolith Back, or Give Me Back My Monolith. <laughs> As opposed to a whole bunch of microservices, right? So there's been a lot of hype, excitement, I don't know, take your, (laughs) choose your side of the fence around microservices. And this is the idea of like, yeah, you have a web app and it's got like 500 Python files and maybe it's doing all these different things. And wouldn't it be better if we could take the credit card processing and make it its own service with its own database? If we could make the caching its own service, its user accounts, its own service, all that kind of stuff. And then that that user account part is super simple, right? Because the whole purpose of this application is, who are you? What can you do? Can you log in? Can you reset your password or something like this, right? This seems good, yeah? Yeah. There's a lot of really good uses for this. Like if you have a large team of people working on a large web app, it might make more sense to break it into these small pieces and have some people in charge of each piece. I think that actually legitimately makes a lot of sense. It's easy to bring on a junior developer who can say, all right, I'm going to work on this caching bit or whatever, and I don't have to know the whole thing. I just got to work on my little API. It does court, async, or whatever it does. That makes a lot of sense, but most people who are working on web apps aren't in that space of having like 30 people on their team, right? That's really rare, right? You've gone down this rant of you're not Google, you're not Facebook, you're not LinkedIn, right? You don't need all these patterns because you are not them your little relatively smaller company or project. Anyway, this guy feels like, you know, that adds a lot of complexity and challenges. And he lays them out of like, why does the world have to be so hard? Wasn't it easy before? And now it's not, not from the article, but just a thought of mine. Like when I think of this microservice architecture, what you're doing is you're taking code complexity and you're moving it to infrastructure complexity. Yeah, definitely. Instead of having one kind of complicated bit of code, I now have 12 super simple bits of code, but they all have to work together in like fairly complicated network environments, failover, you know, all this kind of stuff, this topography and whatnot. So my thought is at least, you know, like, well, which of those two things are you good at? Infrastructure or code? (laughs) 
you know, that drives a lot of these decisions. But he, he runs down a couple of things that he said used to be simple, but now we get to revisit them. <laughs> get to. So uh, setup went from like chemistry to quantum mechanics. <laughs> he, <laughs> a lot of this has to do with bringing new people onto a team or junior developers and things like that. So it says onboarding a new engineer, at least for the initial environment, used to be like half a day. And now we've ventured into microservices. This onboarding time is skyrocketed and it's super complicated for them to understand all the moving pieces. And then uh, the next one is so long for understanding our systems. You know, back when we had monolithic apps, you had an error. It had a stack trace. <laughs> you click on the hyperlink generated by your little editor to take you to the line where the stack trace is. And now you have different services that talk to another service that queues something on a message bus that another service pulls it out and then you get an error. What caused that, right? How do you, tr- how do you follow that through? How do you debug that? So uh, it says, well, if we can't debug them, maybe we can test them. Talks about the challenges of continuous integration and whatnot, but also talks about some services that were made into some apps that were made into microservice. They're now moving back uh, sort of in a reverse migration to these monoliths. And, you know, I got to say, I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic with this. Like I, I see the value of microservices, but I also know that I'm not Google. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, for me, I don't think this whole microservice world makes as much sense in my space, but I don't know. What do you think? We should go back to HTML and Perl. <laughs> That's right. Can't we just have <laughs> static files? All this like logic is CGI my brain. used to be easy. Uh, no, uh, no, no, it I, actually was never ever easy. <laughs> I think that there's different ways to solve problems, and I think that making sure that you're paying attention to it, I think, is a good a good idea, and make sure that people understand that uh, microservices are a are a, sometimes it's a funny sh- funny. It's a shiny new thing to go learn and yeah. and sometimes that's not bad if if you're willing to take on the the risks but but it is a it changing from what you know to what you don't know is a risk so it's definitely exciting i mean you can bring in docker and kubernetes and do all sorts of fun stuff but at the same time just be aware of the trade-offs you're making some of the things that it solved are now solved by async yeah that's true absolutely one of the things also is if you're in a single language or not so one of the things that microservices gives you is the different teams can do whatever language they want as long as they provide an interface that's compatible right. with everybody. The else. authentication bits in Node.js, the the caching tiers and something else, and you know the front ends in Python or whatever. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it makes sense. Again, it's not something we'll do that often when you're just a couple of people. But if you're a big team or a set of teams, then sure, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. So I know of some famous laws and rules in software development, like the solid principles, single responsibility principle, open close principle. These are all good. You found some more amusing ones, didn't you? Yeah. Some of them are serious <laughs> and some are amusing. All of them have kind of a little bit of truth. And this is an older article, so I'm not really sure how I got a hold of it. But it's the famous laws of software development, and there are 13 listed. I think I counted that many. I'm not going to read all 13. I guess it was written in 2017. It's not that old. But, uh, okay, so Hofstetter's Law, which is great. It always takes longer than you expect, even when you take into account Hofstetter's Law. So it's self-referencing. I love it. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) There's some money good ones here. So that's just funny. There's uh, Conway's Law, which... It's not supposed to be funny, but it, it's sometimes depressing. Any piece of software reflects the organizational organizational structure that produced it. Yeah, I think that's true. Like microservices are great for lots of teams, 
one team, one monolith or something. I don't know, but I've seen that before. Also, the the hierarchy of different teams shows up in the in the software as well. And then, of course, the, the last I'm not going to a couple more. I'd like to point out the Peter principle in what in any hierarchy, every employee tends to rise to his level of incompetence. <laughs> Sounds like a quote from the uh, the despair ink <laughs> <laughs> calendars or posters. That's great. Yeah. And then uh, the 90-90 rule, which I haven't actually heard before, but that it's just hilarious. Have you heard this before? No. The first 90% of the code takes 10% of the time. The remaining 10% takes the other 90% of the time. <laughs> that sounds about right to me. Yeah, it's definitely, it feels like things just drag on and on right at the end of these projects. So the comments are good too. I noticed that some people, a guy named Corey threw in a thing and said, I'm shocked that Cunningham's Law isn't on the list. Cunningham's Law. The fastest way to get help over the internet is not to ask a question, but instead to answer it wrong. <laughs> and, then, and then someone also responds, maybe its omission was a constant choice to invoke it. <laughs> that's awesome. So, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. There's a bunch of nice ones in there. Yeah, that's like real though. I mean, the best way to get people to help you on the internet is start blogging the wrong stuff. <laughs> yeah, enable comments and uh, start writing. Yeah, that's cool. I got a quick one to round it out here. Uh, we talked about a plugin architecture before for building plugins that ran like within your app. So basically ways to let people interface like simple bits of code into your other systems and version plugins and all that. There's another one called Beer Garden Plugins, which uh, is pretty fun. And one of the listeners suggested this. So the idea is uh, it's a framework that will convert your functions. These are like regular just Python scripts. They don't know anything about the web or plugins or whatever, convert those into composable, discoverable, production-ready services, as in RESTful HTTP services with minimal overhead. So if you have a class, you can just go say, this is a system, and then the functions on the class, you go, these are services, and they take these parameters, and you describe what they take, things like that. And it will you know, just go serve that. And it even does cool stuff like it does swagger documentation of the the services and whatnot. So yeah, it's a pretty interesting little quick way to convert code that was not meant to be a service into services. Oh, very cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's apparently based on MongoDB, RabbitMQ, and it supports modern Python. So that's pretty cool. It talks about what you have to do to get it running or something that's kind of nice is it also comes in a Docker and Docker Compose form. So you can just clone the Docker Compose bit from github and then you say docker compose up and now it's up and running and then you can give it these little apps and and whatnot it's pretty cool nice yeah so i think the idea is you run your code and it plugs into the server there so yeah anyway it's it's pretty neat people can check that out if that sounds like something they're they're looking for all right well that's it for our official items uh, anything anything else you want to cover here at the end just had a really cool interview uh, the other day this will go out as a testing code 69, which should be available for everybody before you listen to this. But it was with uh, Andy Hunt, who is is now at the the head of Pragmatic Programmer. I mean, yeah, he's one of the original uh, founders of it, right? Him and one other guy, I think. Yeah, is that right. Andy Hunt and Dave Thomas wrote mm-hmm. the Pragmatic Programmer, and that was released in '99. And then in 2003, they formed their own publishing company, and they've been going strong. And the PyTest book was under their publishing company, and so now Dave doesn't have a play an active role in the publishing anymore, but Andy does. And so it's a really cool conversation. Andy was also one of the original signers of the Agile Manifesto. 
And so we talk a lot about. Oh, right. That's cool. Yeah. We talk a lot about that and quite a few other things. So that, that, that's a fun thing to listen to. Excellent. I'm definitely going to check it out when you release it. That's a good one. How about you? So I have two quick things to share with you. First, there's this thing called Firefox Send. Have you heard of this? I have not. Yeah. So Firefox Send is actually not something built into Firefox, but it's more like a Mozilla project to make the web better, right? So here's what it does is it lets you share files securely, large files, like up to two and a half gigs per file. And it does end-to-encryption, end-to-end encryption, where the uh, the decryption key is actually stored in the URL. So if you don't share the URL, like even the Firefox send people can't decrypt it or whatever. Okay, interesting. So basically, it's a a way to serve these files around, like without putting it into Dropbox or OneDrive or Google Drive or whatever, where it's like permanently there, it's going to be backed up. It's, you know, who knows, like if you could ever truly delete that thing, right? Whereas here, the maximum life of one of these files is seven days. And you can even say it can only be downloaded one time and delete it in an hour or something like that. And of course, the encryption key is not stored with the Firefox folks. So like if it gets lost, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Interesting. I have to check that out. Yeah, it's a free, quick little thing. You can either sign in and have a larger, larger file options or smaller ones if you want to say stay anonymous. But yeah, definitely, I think it fills a cool need, and it's kind of nice to see Mozilla just you know making the web better in that way. And it's it doesn't depend on Firefox; it just happens to be made by them. Okay, nice. Speaking of uh, making stuff better, do you know what I really hate? I hate going to weather.com and I'm saying, oh, it looks like you're running an ad blocker. We want to serve you crap ads from an ad network and that may have malicious content and JavaScript in it. So please whitelist us. <laughs> and every time I see that, I think if you, and these are not small little blogs or like little uh, article sites. These are CNN, the Weather Channel, like major, major places, right? And I always think, you know, yeah. look, if you want to serve ads to me, why don't you do it on a system that is not broken on a way that will not put my computer and my information and everything else at risk, you could easily talk to your sponsors, put an image on your site, let people click on it, and it takes them to their offer. But no, they want to run you know all sorts of retargeting and tracking, and they want to figure out like, oh, are you... You are, are you a woman who is 36, who is also searched for this, right? Like it's really shady. So this is not a change for us, but this is more of a make it explicit for us on pythonbytes.fm and also talkpython.fm. We don't pop up these, hey, it looks like you're running an ad blocker. Please stop it. Because our ads still show when there's an ad blocker because all they are is images. And we're not trying to retarget anyone. Isn't that cool? That is very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So... There's this move I've seen on the internet to talk, just sort of a pushback on that to say, no, these are ethical ads. Uh, you know, you see this on Read the Docs and other places. So I put a little note under our ad saying, these ads are served ethically. We don't track you. We don't retarget you. We don't do anything. But here's our sponsor. If you like it, if you like the product, you want to support us, click on it. And that will, that will, they'll know that you came from us because of the URL and that's all you need, right? So I really wish all these places that say, please whitelist us instead said, could we have a better business model where we don't have to track people and do all sorts of nefarious stuff? So we're opting out. Uh, good job. Yeah, thanks. All right, well, uh, I believe it's time to uh, laugh a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, go first. I really like this joke that uh, Derek Chambers submitted 
It is a, what do you call it when a Python programmer refuses to implement custom objects? What's that? I don't know. Self deprivation. <laughs> and then he adds, sorry, that joke was really classless. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. I love it. The classless, classless Python. Cool. So I have another one for you. And I'm, I pretty much have an infinite supply of these now that I've pip x installed pie jokes. <laughs> okay. So I ran this before ours episode and this one came up and said, I had a problem. So I thought I'd use Java. Now I have a problem factory. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Anyway, that's uh, that's the jokes. And uh, if you if you find yourself wanting more jokes between now and the next episode we release, you can always pipx install pie jokes and, and you know get your fix on the command line. Yeah. Oh, here's one more. Okay, I just r- ran it. I got to do this one also. <laughs> There's only two hard problems in computer science: cache invalidation, naming things, and off by one errors. <laughs> nice. Yeah, there's good jokes in that pie jokes set. I love it. Yeah, there's not an infinite number, so people still keep sending us jokes. We love them. Yeah, we're going to hit the limit eventually. It's It's got to happen, but uh, definitely fun. So thank you for sending that in, Derek. And uh, Brian, thanks for doing this with me as every week. Yep, thank you. You bet. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.